0: The next time you think about what HIV looks like, I want you to think about Greg Laganis. In 1988, six months before he was about to leave for the Olympics in Seoul, Greg found out that he was living with HIV, and from there, well, you probably know the rest. He did go to Seoul, and during one of his first dives, he hit his head on the diving board. They immediately gave him stitches, and 30 minutes later, he got back on the board to continue diving. And he won two gold medals. This made him the first man and only the second person to ever sweep both diving events in two consecutive Olympics. He is widely considered the greatest diver of all time, so that is what HIV looks like, that is what is possible. I wanted to talk to Greg about this moment because it was bigger than just him of course. And even though he wasn't open about his HIV status then, when he did share it with the public in 1995, HIV was no less of an issue as it unfortunately remains today. So all of that is coming up and from The Advocate Magazine in partnership with GLAAD, I'm Jeffrey Masters and this is LGBTQ&A with the world's greatest diver, Greg Le. Janus. I'm going to start off by going back to the 1988 Olympics in Seoul. I'm fascinated by that moment because we have incredibly few examples of athletes living with HIV and competing at the highest levels. And so at that Olympics, you walked away with two gold medals. But going back to that time, 1988, that was not a certainty by any means. At that time, how were you thinking about how HIV might affect your diving career?
1: I really didn't know. Now, back in 88, we thought of HIV AIDS as a death sentence. So my thought was, well, if I'm HIV positive, I don't want to waste my coach's time. I don't want to waste my teammates time. So I was going to pack up my bags and go back to California and lock myself in my house and wait to die. So that was my intent. But my doctor, who is also my cousin, he encouraged me to stay and train He said that that was the healthiest thing I could probably do for myself. They put me on AZT right away because they wanted to treat me very aggressively. At that time, I mean, there were travel bans. So nobody could know about my HIV status or I wouldn't have been allowed into the country. So it was a well-kept
0: secret. And with the AZT, it's not just like... A once a pill day. Like things are now, you're waking up every four hours to take it.
1: (laughs) Right. Yeah. The way that it was prescribed back then, it was two pills every four hours around the clock. So you're getting up in the middle of the night and the morning, no matter where you are. If I was training, my little alarm would go off and it's like, oh, easy tea break, just like in rent.
0: (laughs) And so, like, a good night's sleep before competing the Olympics was just impossible for you.
1: Right. You know, as an athlete, as a performer, We train. I mean, we get accustomed to, okay, what needs to be done? Like my medication, you know, I just adjust it.
0: I think we think about like the current medication. As you said, it's no longer a death sentence if you have access to healthcare. And you can compete and do anything you want like today. But I think like what kind of amazes me about your story is that you did it like before the drugs got good.
1: It's before we knew anything. I mean, AZT was an experimental drug for treatment. It was initially a cancer drug. And so they didn't know the toxicity. They didn't know potential side effects. We were basically guinea pigs.
0: And so everything we're describing sounds incredibly stressful on top of just the normal stress of competing at the Olympics. How would you rate how you were dealing with that stress?
1: (laughs) You know, I learned through just my life in general, you know, as a performer, it's like, okay, you sprain your ankle tie you know, wrap it up and get back out there. As soon as the music starts, you got to you got to perform, you know, it's that mentality. I was able to compartmentalize my life when I was in the pool, when I was competing, when I was training, HIV AIDS didn't exist. You know, that was kind of a sanctuary for me so it was a place that i could go to really to seek refuge from the stress of the hiv diagnosis
0: i i was also wondering too as you said it was just a death sentence back then i was wondering like how that affected the like decisions you were making you fell in the olympics that year you hit your head on the diving board you were bleeding you had a concussion you got stitches and then you got back on the board 30 minutes later and I wondered how much of that was just, like, your drive and determination versus also thinking that you were going to die and had, like, nothing to lose.
1: Well, trying to roll everything up in (laughs) one little moment. I mean, going into the nineteen eighty Olympic Games, I was the odds on favorite because I was world champion a couple years before. And going into the competition, when I did my reverse two-and-a-half pike and hit my head on the board— In that split second, I became the underdog. And so, you know, the underdog position is much more, usually generally much more comfortable to be in because then you have nothing to lose. And also, it kind of was a wake-up call to my coach, Ron O'Brien, and myself to pay attention because, you know, nothing is guaranteed. Anything can happen. And so it really forced us to focus in on, okay, let's just do one dive at a time and not get ahead of ourselves. And so it really kind of really pushed us to focus on the moment, being in the moment.
0: And so when you shared with the world that you are living with HIV, this was in '95. And and that's kind of when, like, the contrary started that, like, oh, he's bleeding the pool, even though we know now, like, you know, there was no way to transmit through pool water. Right. However, was any of the coverage also like, wow, this Olympic athlete has HIV, hit his head and still won the gold medal?
1: I think initially it was, you know, a lot of finger pointing, a lot of accusations. But then I think it was like, oh, wow, God, you got back up there. (laughs) How'd you do that?
0: I just, to me, like, that timing is remarkable, where it's 1988, the AIDS crisis is unfolding, ACT UP is acting up, right? Even though you weren't out at the time in the Olympics, in 95, when you did come out, that was still an incredibly dark time for HIV-AIDS. And so, like, you coming out as living with HIV and as being this gold medal winner, to me, that's like a huge PR moment to help combat stigma.
1: Yeah, I guess it kind of turned into that. Yeah, that wasn't my intent. I was doing Jeffrey, the play.
0: By a Paul Rudnick.
1: Yeah. So I was able to live out my fantasies and fears on stage because Darius is out and proud. He's in Gay Pride Marchers. And he also, I felt, delivers the most poignant message to the lead character Jeffrey when he turns to Jeffrey and says, Jeffrey, hey, AIDS, not life. That was a big part of it because I did. I felt isolated. I felt alone. and I And I was thinking you know what, chances are I'm not the only one. So if I come forward with what I've been dealing with, with my HIV, with all of that stuff, and open that door up, then I would hopefully be letting people in who may be feeling the same way to let them know that they're not alone.
0: And your life for so long revolved around diving. It took up all of your time necessarily. Reading your book, it seemed like because of all that time spent, you weren't able to invest in or be a part of a gay community. (laughs) You didn't have like a circle of like gay friends. Like, did I get that wrong?
1: No, that's pretty accurate. I I think I, you know, I was totally immersed in my diving. I I, I kept everything separate. I I mean, every everything, my entire life was compartmentalized. I had my college friends. I had my social friends. I had my diving friends. I had my theater friends. When I was doing Equus, Jimmy Quig, who played Dr. Dysart, he turned to me and said, I know Greg Luganis, the actor, but I understand you dive as well. And I was like, well, yeah, I'm kind of on scholarship for that, but yeah, yeah. (laughs) There's other things I do.
0: You were like a relationship guy and you were in a relationship for like the peak of Greg Louganis fame. Does any part of you wish that you had been like single and slutty for lack of better words? <laughs>
1: <laughs> it's funny because I probably describe myself more as a serial monogamist, you know, is that, Oh, I latch onto somebody and it's like, Oh, that's it. You yeah, know, This is it. This is it. This is it. You know, kind of thing. And then I stay too long. I was like oh my god this isn't working oh this is not what I thought it was it's like you know but you learn I mean through relationships and and all that and you know now I'm happily divorced and I'm very good friends with my ex-husband and you know we share you know we still share a lot of things together it's it's a good thing I think we recognized that this wasn't, it was good for when it was, and it wasn't necessarily meant to be a forever thing, but now I'm single. (laughs) I'm learning, I need to be comfortable with myself. And I am, me and the dogs, we we do great. You know, we navigate very well together. And also learning that we don't have to look outside of ourselves for validation, that we can be the validating cheerleader for ourselves and have confidence in that.
0: And so you are 62 years old and finally like learning that lesson.
1: I know. It took uh, yeah. And it's a it's a process, you know, hopefully people get it sooner than 62, but
0: better now <laughs> yeah, than later. Yeah.
1: I don't mean that in a judgmental way. Yeah. Cause sometimes, you know, you realize, you know, I, you know, I probably could have stayed in some of the, the relationships, but it probably wouldn't have been productive. And also, I mean, you start building up resentments too. And so to let go of those resentments and make peace with that and just be comfortable in your own skin and embrace yourself.
0: For a period of time, you were like one of the most famous gay men in America. Was that challenging to have that change?
1: Okay. So I'm dyslexic. And so I'm not one to it was never a habit of mine to pick up a newspaper and read it every day during my diving career one thing that my mother used to do when i was growing up is she would come in and read the articles and she'd share with me a, a nice article that something somebody wrote had nice things to say and her instructions to me were okay next time you see this individual you know cuz the sports reporters we'd see them Every so often they were at so many of our competitions so the next time I saw them I could say thank you for the kind words so I can be in gratitude and you know be appreciative of what they might be saying about me if it was if it was positive the other stuff I didn't really care about I didn't I didn't focus on it wasn't interesting to me and it's so funny because like everybody thinks fame and fortune goes hand in hand it doesn't. <laughs> I'll take the fortune before <laughs> you can have the fame. It was never a goal. It was never like my intent. It was a byproduct of what I was doing.
0: Well, um, as you said, the fortune didn't come easy. You've been very open about the challenges post Olympics. How are you doing today, like money wise?
1: I'd be lying if I'd say if I said, "Oh, it's great! It's great! It's wonderful!" No, you know, it, it's a struggle. I think every everybody's had a struggle you know, with uh, the whole pandemic and the shifting and, you know, because most of my livelihood has been speaking and then that kind of events kind of dried up. And so now we're going virtual. And so it's
0: changed
1: a lot. Have I found my pot of gold? Not yet. (laughs) Still looking.
0: I think also just like factually, there were other like opportunities that were not open to you because you were gay. Like we can say that, right?
1: Right. Yeah. I mean, definitely. You know, because I was, people ask me, when did I come out? It depends on who you talk to. I was out to friends and family. I was out, you know, it it was an issue. My sexual identity was an issue with international travel sometimes, you know, because who was going to room with the fag? Was
0: that a thing that you were told?
1: Yeah. And, And the thing is, you know, everybody wants to point to homophobia, but God, we were, you know, in our early 20s you know, late teens, early 20s, you know. So I think it was more about jealousy and envy than it was about homophobia because I've run into a lot of those, you know, those individuals. They didn't have a problem with my sexual identity. They didn't didn't have any issue with that. You know, it was just, it, it was more that I was winning all the time.
0: Oh, because you won a silver medal when you were 17, I believe? 16. 16. Yeah. Almost your entire professional diving career was as like an Olympian.
1: Yeah, I had a really bizarre career as a diver because my first Olympics I was 16. I was in high school. All the other all my other teammates were out of college. They were older. And then once I made the finals of nationals and once I qualified for an Olympic team, then I could no longer compete in the age group division at that time. So I was thrown into the senior scene and without the ability to go Back to age group to where my peers would have been. So I went through several, you know, quadrennials before my group caught up to me.
0: And then by that time, you had just gotten even better. Yeah. You know, as you said, you are as um, not asthmatic. <laughs> You're uh, dyslexic. Well, I had asthma too. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I gr- Growing up, I, I did have asthma, and then that uh, shifted. Oh, let's list all your ailments. I, just yeah, kidding. I know. <laughs> really, really. Okay, yeah. Now, I, as a child, I was asthmatic, and then that turned into hay fever. I was allergic to dogs and horses and all that stuff.
0: But so growing up, you were dyslexic, and you didn't have a word for that, so you just thought that you were dumb. And you also said you thought you were ugly and you didn't fit in. And then the world gets to know this handsome, shirtless, Olympic gold medal winner, did your brain ever make that adjustment and catch up to the way that everyone else sees you? No, I no.
1: I mean, I, I don't. I don't see myself that way. Uh, it's just, uh, yeah, I, I I I never saw myself in that light. I mean, when they would give me these labels, it's like, oh, that's interesting. Yeah, I mean, I s- still probably saw you know, this little kid with a white ethnic nose.
0: I mean, I was surprised reading the book that you, growing up, you would like darker skin and they just called you the N-word because they didn't have words for like Samoan.
1: Right. Well, I didn't know where Samoa was. And so, and I never, you know, researched it. You know, so I I had no idea. So I didn't, I, I didn't know what that meant. That's the thing that uh, I'm really learning and uh, is that, I mean, it's, It's not so much the words, it's the meaning we give them.
0: Right, because like the first time I was called a faggot, like I didn't know what that even meant. I just like heard the hate in that word. Right, yeah,
1: because you can hear it in the tone. So it's like, oh, well then that must be something bad, right? So then we start judging.
0: With your Simone culture, I saw that you have a tattoo on your shoulder and arm. Is that from that? Is that connected?
1: Yeah, it was funny because like I, I was at the, the reunion for my biological father. This is before I had any tattoos. And I said, you know, I've been thinking about this. It's like, Malcolm, my half-brother. I said, do you have a tattoo? And I was, oh, Greg, I'm Samoan. And so I was like, oh, okay. And so then I said, okay, who would you recommend for me to go to? Because I wanted to have something, you know, kind of, you know, tribal family-ish kind of thing. And so he introduced me to Alapape. Alapate. Because he's doing a lot of my nieces and nephews. Yeah, because it's, it's tradition. It, it's, it, and, and I'm learning about the Samoan Polynesian culture because I wasn't raised in that. I was raised Greek. My name's Greek. So I was raised in Greek church and, you know, those traditions, Easter, all that stuff.
0: Oh, with your parents who adopted you?
1: Right. Parents that I grew up with. Yeah. And it's funny because like in the Polynesian culture, it's all about the elders and so I was staying with my brother this one Christmas and I was observing some of, this. there was a little bit of tension and I realized, oh my God, you know, I'm, I'm the elder. And it's like, okay, Malcolm, look, you know, I always wanted a big brother and I may be older, but you're my big brother. I mean, and he's a big guy. He is. I mean, he was like a pop world champion powerlifter, kind of, kind of guy who was on the, uh, on the police force. I look to him. He is my big brother. I, you know, he's, you know, he's that family. I'm learning, you know, I'm just a kid learning.
0: Oh, you're learning about your family and your culture for the first time. Right. Yeah. I mean, I don't want to tell you this, but right now on the podcast, we're doing a whole series on LGBTQ elders. Oh, wow. Is that like weird to be in that group?
1: Oh my God. Yeah. I mean, because you know what, that was probably the weirdest thing for me. Finding my biological family because in the family that I was raised in, I was the baby, and then now I'm I'm the elder perceived, and it's like oh my god, no, no, I don't I don't I don't want to be the eldest child. You know, I I, I know how to be the baby. I don't know how to be the
0: oldest child. Going back in time though, you won those four back to back gold medals and then retired. And you'd worked for so long to achieve this one goal. I kind of wonder, what does a person do when they work for so hard for so long to achieve something, and then they do it before they turn 30? What was it like to have to figure out what you wanted to do next?
1: Well, I didn't think I'd see 30, honestly, because I was diagnosed in 88, and generally they gave you two years. And so I didn't think I would see 30. And then... A year, you know, year'd go, by, year'd go by, year'd go by, year'd go by, you know, kind of thing. So now at sixty-two, it's like, wow, now what do I do? I gotta get a job.
0: <laughs> so did that kind of stop you from planning, like for like your long-term future and like financial decisions because you didn't think you'd have to deal with those things?
1: Yeah, there, there was a, there was a point there. It's like, oh, I'll do whatever I want because I'm not gonna be here. And then all of a sudden, I, probably around 40 is when I was like, shit, you know, I got to figure out what to do here, <laughs> you know, find, figure out a, you know, means of living and paying my bills.
0: So reaching forward, you've seen firsthand the evolution of like HIV, AIDS, METs from like AZT to where they are now. What was that moment like when you found out that with the current drugs that you could even like no longer transmit the virus yourself?
1: Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that was that was huge. You know, if your viral load's undetectable, then you're untransmittable. When that information hit, it was like, oh, wow. You know, I, I mean, it's just really. A game changer. Yeah, I mean, it's it's like okay, this isn't definitely not what it used to be. But you know, I, I still I still go to a couple of doctor's appointments of young men who recently you know sero-converted because it's, it's still frightening. You know, you don't know what it is, what it looks like, and you know how it's going to be managed and all that stuff. And, and I've probably been on just about every HIV/AIDS medication that's out there, so I you know know side effects and all that stuff.
0: When you found out you were undetectable, did that have like a um, noticeable effect in like your mentality, like how you like went about like life at all?
1: No, I mean, because what I was conditioned to in my early diagnosis, I'd go to my doctor's appointment, get my numbers, and then they put that file back in the shelves, you know, back in the filing cabinet. And that's where I would put it. Because, like, okay, I have my marching orders. I've got to do this, 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 and take care of myself and then go about the business of living. So I really didn't focus on it all that much. I didn't know if there were more medications coming down the pipeline. I wasn't really that stressed over all of that stuff because I knew that it was going to be what it was going to be.
0: I see. That's healthy.
1: Yeah, I mean, because I didn't have control over it. I mean, a lot of my friends were like, oh, my God, you know, this is... This is the last combination I can do because I'm resistant to, you know, all of these drugs. And I just didn't, I didn't focus on that. So early on in the diagnosis, when they put the file away, I put the file away.
0: Like in your 30s, you thought that every birthday was going to be your last one. When did you stop treating birthdays like that?
1: Well, okay, so my 33rd birthday, I was wasting. I mean, I was clearly losing weight. I I wasn't doing well. And so I thought I was saying goodbye to all my friends. I agreed to have a surprise birthday party and all the people that showed up. It was just amazing. I mean, the areas of my life that weren't supposed to meet, you know, it was, it was like, oh my God, all under one roof. But I did think that I was saying goodbye. And I, I, I went to Florida to see my cousin, checked into the hospital under an assumed name. I thought it was, I, I thought it was gone. That was it. But they found that I had a fungal infection in my colon. So once they got me the proper medication, then I rebounded from that. And then from that point on, it's like, hey, I'm here. Enjoy it.
0: Did having that near-death experience and did having so many ex-partners die from AIDS complications, did all that change how you think about death just in general?
1: Probably, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because like people say that they fear death. I don't. What's there to fear? You know, you're not, you're not going to be here, right? And whatever your beliefs are, I don't think death is the end. You know, it's just a transition.
0: But so it sounds like you had so much experience with death early on, also with like thoughts of suicide, that kind of like now you are not worried. It doesn't give you anxiety
1: no it doesn't you know sometimes like if you are you know get lightheaded you know you're you know you haven't eaten and you get lightheaded and you get dizzy it's like oh wow that's an interesting feeling you know like you're about ready to pass out or something you know and like so many people like oh my god oh my god you know and they panic but the way that i i view it whenever something like that happens to me and I get dizzy or, you know, if I stand up too quickly, it's like, oh my God, isn't that interesting? I, I find it fascinating.
0: So you're approaching death with a curiosity.
1: Right, yeah. I mean, I'm I like, love oh my God, where is this leading? Oh, this is cool. So it's just like, why stress about it to prolong it or just enjoy the ride?
0: I think that is an amazing place to leave it. So thank you for the amazing conversation. Oh, my pleasure. And that was Greg Laganas Now, Greg released a memoir in the 90s called Breaking the Surface, and that was actually co-written by Eric Marcus. You, of course, know Eric from the Making Gay History podcast. Big thank you to Eric for helping to set this up. And big thank you to you for helping us to spread the word about our show. Many of you have been tweeting about us and posting on Instagram and Facebook. And doing things like that, it really is the number one way you can help our show continue to grow. So thank you, thank you, thank you to everyone who's doing that. And keep it up. Don't stop now, baby. All right, we're brought to you by The Advocate Magazine in partnership with Glad. I'm Jeffrey Masters on Twitter and Instagram at JeffMasters1. I'll see you next week. Bye.